Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. Amor McKinney is out this week. I am your host, Alex Lawson, and with me as always is my co-host, Haley Knopf. Haley, hello. Hey, Alex. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you, as always. Wanted to do a little housekeeping. Next week, I just wanted to keep everybody's sort of ears peeled. We're going to have a really special episode for you, sort of in the summer doldrums, meant to fill the gap a little bit when the news is drying up. But this week, the news is not dried up at all. Haley, you and I had a conversation with Andrew McIntyre, the editor-at-large for Law360's Real Estate Authority, and we talked about a very, like, a sort of nebulous concept that I think a lot of people have heard of, force majeure in contracts, which is sort of like an escape clause for, like, acts of God and unforeseen events, often means weather events, but it's taken on a new meaning in, like, the post-COVID-19 pandemic atmosphere. It has. It has. So make sure you stick around for that. It's a very, you know, one of those fun glimpses into contract law. Uh, can't believe I just said fun glimpse into contract law, but but hey, it is. So we're <laughs> going with it. Uh, but yes. before we get to that, Alex, you have um, an update for us on um, a story that we have talked about in the past, Arnold and Porter their involvement in uh, some opioid litigation. What's the deal with that? Yeah, so there's a couple of different opioid litigation updates to get to this week. First of all, just yesterday, there was a $650 million damages ruling against CVS, Walmart, and Walgreens out of Ohio. And that is believed to be the first uh, ruling against pharmacies in the opioid litigation saga, which is often focused on drug makers and distributors. This is like the first substantive ruling against actual pharmacies who fill these prescriptions. Again, that's in Ohio. It'll it'll go through um, a number of other appellate phases and things like that, but it is significant and I wanted to say so. But the thing that you're referencing, Haley, is that we're talking about the continued fallout from Endo Pharmaceuticals and its failure to come forward with key documents in litigation over its involvement in the opioid crisis. We've talked about this on a couple of different episodes. Now, Endo has settled the case, but now New York attorneys are continuing to go after the attorneys at Arnold and Porter for their failure to to turn over these materials, and it's getting a little sticky. And I thought it would be good to kind of loop us back in on that. Yeah, I'm so glad we're getting back into this one because it is a very... Uh, I mean, your word was probably best. It's just getting a little, a little wild. But before we get into the latest update, can you remind us what exactly is going on with this case? Yeah, so for so we're talking about Endo Pharmaceuticals and their lawyers at Arnold and Porter. That's what we're talking about. And for a fuller description, you can listen to episodes 217 and episode 221. And we covered this at length, but what you basically need to know is that in the course of defending Endo Pharmaceuticals in the opioid litigation, and Endo is the manufacturer of Percocet, 
and other uh, opioids, um, attorneys at Arnold and Porter were found to have concealed key documents from the court about the company's marketing and selling of the drug long after they were supposed to have turned them over. And that's been basically well established at this point. But that's really just the start of the story because Endo eventually settled the case. And now, though, state prosecutors are going after, I mean, Endo is basically out of it. And now it is just this showdown between New York prosecutors and Arnold and Porter itself, the law firm, for sanctions over the firm's role in the company's failure to disclose these very crucial documents in the course of this litigation. Right, right. Specifically, what are the prosecutors saying about these sanctions? Like, what do they want? Yeah, so it's getting a little bit weedy. I hope you'll stay with me. But basically... I'll do my best. Yeah, well, you know, um, we did trade <laughs> law with A-Law two weeks ago, and everybody came out of that okay. So that's probably fine. Um, <laughs> but the... Uh, okay, so... The thing to know is that both the New York AG's office and Arnold and Porter sent letters to the state court on Friday. And now that the underlying case has settled, this sort of back and forth over the sanctions against the firm is really kind of coming to the fore. So Arnold and Porter is trying to give more documents to the court that it says kind of soften its role in this like secrecy over discovery to say like, we didn't actually know they were hiding this stuff from us, um, you know, and, and, and all this. The point is though, that they are trying to file them under seal. And it told the court that the quote, good names of lawyers repeatedly have been besmirched by the state attorneys over the fight over attorney sanctions. Now, you know, for their part, the New York attorneys, the prosecutors have gone after Arnold and Porter for filing these docs under seal, accusing the firm of, quote, uh, of using, quote, last minute cherry picked selected secret evidence to show that it wasn't complicit in its deception to the court. So to kind of put a bow on this, the the idea is like they didn't turn over documents to the court in the course of litigation. And now the New York prosecutors are saying you're actually being too secret in how you're trying to exonerate yourself, right? <laughs> about saying like, you're not telling us like about this information that can actually get you off the hook for this. So we're, we're a couple levels deep on the, sub, on the alleged subterfuge here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, we've got a lot of, a lot of alleged secrecy here. But so what, what exactly is at stake? Yeah, so there's already been a court commissioned mediator referee um, that has put Arnold and Porter on the hook for $2.1 million in sanctions for its role in failing to turn over the documents in the initial um, investigation. But it's up to the judge to know whether he's going to take in this new evidence that the firm is trying to present, that the firm says could exonerate it. But I think like the bigger picture thing here is that, you know, Arnold and Porter is a huge firm and it's now in this very public brawl with New York prosecutors. The, the company's attorneys have said on, in several filings, um, they said, quote, that the, that, or rather that the state has, quote, 
dragged these proceedings out, leaving Arnold and Porter tarred with innuendo. So they sort of see it as this, like, the underlying opioids case has settled, and now you're really kind of going after us, right? So what began as a fight over discovery, you know, sort of documentation in this opioid case is now a pretty bitter fight between New York lawyers and this very powerful law firm. Um, And, you know, this is just what I'm talking about now is just their latest exchange of snipery. But we'll have to stay tuned to see um, exactly where it progresses from here. Yeah. And I've got to say, you know, merits aside, I really appreciate the use of tarred with innuendo and besmirched. (laughs) So... Definitely going to be keeping my eyes on that one. Thank you, Alex. Now I want us to talk about an issue near and dear to my millennial heart. I assume it's near and dear to your millennial heart as well, but I shouldn't make (laughs) assumptions here. Um, It's time to talk about financial aid. It's time to talk about financial aid. It's also, we're creeping up on back to school season, I think, which is why we wanted to uh, talk about this it's a case that's very interesting on its own, but it's uh, it's interesting for that reason as well. Yeah, very timely. So 17 private universities are accused of working together to limit the amount of financial aid awarded to their students. These are big name U.S. universities, MIT, Georgetown, Northwestern, Duke, Yale, just to name a few. Um, A group of former students sued them in Illinois federal court earlier this year, and they're accusing the schools of antitrust violations. Um, And the the big update, why we're talking about this now, is this week the district court gave the students the green light to proceed with their claims and rejected a motion to dismiss from the schools. We're jumping in sort of at the first substantive hurdle of the case, and it's a super interesting lawsuit I want to talk about exactly what the schools are accused of doing. This is apparently a hotbed of antitrust litigation on on Law 360. We talked about Live and PGA last week. Um, Now we're talking about these universities. Now they're like, they are accused of colluding to give out less financial aid or they're strategically apportioning their financial aid or like what exactly is uh, what exactly is alleged here yeah that's not exactly it but but kind of so the former student plaintiffs say the schools used a shared methodology to calculate prospective students financial needs and according to the students that's not cool for a variety of reasons but Most relevant to the latest development, it's not cool because the universities then considered students' financial situations while making admissions decisions, according to them. Uh, Specifically, the students said the schools considered those financial situations when admitting waitlisted and transfer students. Uh, And, you know, predictably, they're also saying that the schools favored children from past or potential donors, um, and several of the schools are also accused of using a secretive admissions process to show preference to richer applicants, which is uh, nothing new, I I should say. Yeah, but, you know, whenever you're doing a, you know, an antitrust, a competition suit, there's got to be an an allegation of collusion, which they have done. But, like, what is the... 
how does that work? Like, I mean, they're saying like the like the schools worked together to apportion financial aid this way, or like, what are the underlying allegations exactly? The students say the universities work together to eliminate financial aid as a point of competition between them. Yeah. So without the alleged conspiracy, and you know, given the obscene cost of higher education in <laughs> our right. in our beloved nation. Students often decide where they'll go based on who gives them the most financial aid, right? But with this arrangement, students would get essentially the same financial aid from all of these private schools. So they're all on the same footing in that regard. And the students specifically are claiming that the schools effectively fixed the total price of attendance for about 170,000 students over the past 20 years. Now, we're talking about how it sort of overcame a key hurdle, and we'll get there in a second. But what were the university's response to this? I mean, I, in terms of colluding to put strictures around financial aid. It's interesting because the schools are not actually denying that they work together at this stage uh, of the litigation, at least. You know, we'll see what they say later. But right now, they're saying it's perfectly fine for them to work together on certain aspects of financial aid offerings, as long as that's not used when making admissions decisions. And, you know, contrary to what the students are alleging, they argued that's absolutely the case here. They don't look at financial aid when deciding who to admit. They pointed to an exemption in the Improving America's School Act that spells that out. On top of that, they argued that only five of the schools favor applicants based on if they're related to potential donors. Those schools are, just want to call them out here, uh, those schools are, so no, everyone knows. say it. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brown, Columbia, Duke, Georgetown, and MIT. They said that even though those schools may, you know, factor in donors, those claims are legally irrelevant. And even if those schools are not exempt under the Improving America's School Act, that doesn't mean that all of the schools listed in the complaint should lose that exemption. Well, and the only reason we're talking about it now is that these are pretty incendiary allegations, obviously. Like, I mean, you, the idea that like elite institutions are like being very strategic with the amount of money they give out and especially acting in concert. But the court allowed it to continue. They allowed this case to continue. So like what, what were the contours of that decision? District Judge Matthew Kennelly said that the students had reasonably alleged that they took all financial situations into account during admissions decisions so basically, the exemption is a no-go here, according to him. Uh, here's a quote from his order. Taking all of the allegations together, there is more than enough to plausibly allege that the various enrollment management strategies described in the amended complaint violate the requirements of the exemption. He also rejected an argument um, that I, I didn't mention up top, but um, that the students were outside of the four-year statute of limitations for those antitrust claims. He said that's because, theoretically, the schools could have attempted to cover up their scheme, making it unreasonable to expect the students to have known about it. 
any earlier. And I should know this is far from the first time a bunch of big name schools are accused of anti-competitive behavior. Yeah. Or, you know, having their admissions processes criticized. But it's certainly becoming more of a hot button issue these days. And it seems that universities are having a harder time defending some of these practices. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Until recently, contract provisions meant to guard against unforeseen disasters and, quote, acts of God were fairly routine. And even seasoned attorneys didn't pay them much mind. But that all changed in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has sent attorneys scrambling to make sure that their bases are covered in the event of the next global calamity. Here to break down this quickly shifting area of the law is Andrew McIntyre, an editor-at-large at Law 360's Real Estate Authority. Andrew, welcome to Pro Se. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. This is like a really somewhat niche subject area, but highly important. And what we're talking about is, you know, the area of contracts that I think are commonly known as force majeure, act of God, which can let everybody out of their obligations. So what are force majeure obligations and how do they work, specifically in the real estate context, which is what you're here to tell us about? Sure. So it's a French term. It literally translates to greater force or superior force. The the basic idea of contracts that we're looking at here is party A and party B have a contract and party A says party B has an obligation to perform something under the contract. And the existential question that we're uh, talking about today is what happens if party B can't fulfill its contract? So just a little bit of context in terms of how this came about. Uh, one of the key decisions that the U.S. Supreme Court took up in the late 19th century was actually a case called Tornado. And this... <laughs> I yeah. love that. My Midwestern yeah. heart is is so full. <laughs> yeah. So, so the tornado reference here actually was not a reference to weather. It was a reference to a ship called Tornado. Oh, and, okay, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> All right, well, then what are we even talking about? Here? Right. Yeah. And the the dispute was that this uh, ship called Tornado had an obligation to deliver some freight. The uh, ship caught fire before it left port and so clearly wasn't able to deliver that freight. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruled it in the late 19th century that uh, the tornado uh, did not have an obligation to deliver that freight because of this uh, unforeseen event. Now, here's the thing. There was no force majeure clause in that contract. So you might say, so how did the tornado shirk its duty in this case? Well, right. at, that, at that time, courts were using areas of common law, uh, areas like uh, frustration of purpose or impossibility of performance uh, to determine uh, to essentially let the tornado off the hook. But it was around this time and then in the 20th century that lawyers started thinking, hey, 
let's come up with a separate set of clauses beyond these common law clauses of impossibility of performance or frustration of purpose to specifically name some events that could help our clients get out of duties if those events come true. And so this is kind of the origins of force majeure. So you fast forward a century and you have what turned into sort of boilerplate language largely centered around natural disasters. So think now actual weather tornadoes. uh, (laughs) All right, now we're talking. (laughs) There you go, Haley. (laughs) Uh, As well as hurricanes and floods. Uh, strikes sometimes uh, came up, uh, labor strikes, I should say, came up uh, uh, among that uh, fairly short list of events that could be considered force majeure events. And so the thought was, you know, if any of these events happened and the party could no longer fulfill its obligation under the contract, then force majeure could let the party off the hook. Uh, so that's sort of a brief history of of. of of force majeure, I would say pre-pandemic. So then the pandemic did hit and of course changed so many things we were not expecting it to change. How how did it affect these clauses and how they're they're read and interpreted? So the the key about force majeure is that these clauses have always been read and interpreted very narrowly and so that part didn't really change in terms of how how they're read, but what did change is how they were how they were written. You know, a, a very narrow reading of the clause in the wake of the global pandemic created myriad headaches because, well, what are you looking for? You're looking for a clause that says a pandemic happened and I can't fulfill my duty. Well, you're not generally going to find that because pandemic wasn't written into these clauses before the pandemic. So then, how do you deal? with a clause that has to be read narrowly and doesn't include the word pandemic. So that sent lawyers scrambling, first of all, to figure out how exactly these clauses were written. Is there anything about the pandemic that they could latch on to in defense of their clients? And then uh, more importantly, as new contracts were being inked in March, April, May, June of 2020, how was this going to change? And after the pandemic hit, I can imagine there was a lot of uh, consternation and probably, I don't know, litigation about what these clauses mean and how they apply. I mean, what were the ripple effects of this event for people who are who are looking at this type of language? So I want to first talk about disputes between tenants and landlords, because that was was the big that was the yeah. big big issue that hit within a month of this happening, right? You know, for so many reasons, tenants all of a sudden can't make their monthly rent payments. Uh, They may think that, you know, they're covered by force majeure because clearly this pandemic hit, there were government shutdowns, uh, they lost a lot of revenue, they can't make their payments, uh, they're going to claim force majeure to get off the hook of paying rent. So the thing about that is that there were lots of disputes between landlords and tenants on that point in the early months, but tenants largely didn't have a lot of traction in court on that point because prior to the pandemic, it was uh, pretty universally agreed upon that force majeure actually can't help someone get out of uh, paying rent. But 
you know, there were still lots of disputes and discussions and workouts uh, out of court on this issue. And in the early months, I think landlords were, you know, willing to work with tenants to some extent to give rent abatement and uh, to find solutions. But a lot of those solutions were arrived at out of court on that particular dispute, that particular type of dispute, I should say. Uh, but there were other disputes that that did go to court. One of the big questions was, let's say you have an event scheduled for April of 2020. And yeah, then, sure. Yeah, so, right. And then uh, the pandemic hits. Well, you're probably not going to be holding your concert in April of 2020. You're probably not going to be holding your academic conference at a Marriott hotel in May of 2020. You've probably already paid all your fees. And so the question is, does Marriott need to refund those fees? Does the concert venue need to refund those fees? Uh, those are the types of dis disputes that went to court. And then when those disputes go to court, it's always a very narrow reading of exactly how the force majeure clause was constructed. Yeah. And so you're really at the mercy of how your lawyer wrote your clause, uh, how specific it was, how broad it was, what types of events it, me it mentioned, and then you're also at the mercy of uh, how well your lawyers can argue it, I guess. Yeah, and that's that's a big part of why we're having you on the show this week, because um, you're talking about the evolution of the way that clause is written, about how it was just sort of like this thing that no one really was just somewhat boilerplate. It was it was not something that everybody paid a lot of attention to, but as like post COVID contracts are getting drafted and the force majeure provision is getting more attention. What are people paying more attention to? How are they trying to like shore this up? Right. So, you know, uh, as I mentioned, the, the language was very boilerplate before, but now the, the obvious change is you've got to mention a pandemic. You've got to mention an epidemic in these clauses you also need to pay attention to government orders because you can make the case that the pandemic was the reason that you couldn't fulfill your con your contract obligation, but you can also make the case that government shutdowns was the reason. And so you, you now need to have that in a clause. Um, before the pandemic, I would think there were almost no force majeure clauses that mentioned government shutdowns. So that's entirely new uh, <laughs> here. Uh, and then later, you have the questions of the supply chain. So, uh, you know, the supply chain is, is kind of a lagging indicator. It takes uh, a little bit more time to reach the construction market in the U.S. But now you also have force majeure clauses talking about, you know, delays in getting supplies. And maybe a contractor can't make a construction deadline because it couldn't get a supply because of uh, supply chain issues. And so there's more attention being paid to that as well. Right. And one of the pieces you wrote got uh, more specifically into some examples of the new types of these clauses that you're seeing. Um, are there any of those that are particularly interesting or important? Yeah. So I talked to more than a dozen sources for some reporting on this, uh, just looking at how this force majeure portion of contracts has changed since the pandemic. And uh, I'll share a couple examples with you. Uh, I mentioned government response uh, just a minute ago. And so 
Uh, one example here I'll share has a, a fairly lengthy discussion. So um, for, <laughs> forgive forgive the kind of long reading of this, but it's it's literally a part of one sentence in a contract that the are you trying to tell me that somebody who drafted a contract was long winded Andrew? <laughs> no way. Law- lawyers, you know? Yeah. Uh, right. So, <laughs> so I'll read you literally a, a part of a sentence from a force majeure contract. And there are a lot of things in here, uh, but there's a lot of discussion about government response and uh, note that just, the, the the lawyer who wrote this took great pains to discuss government response in many, many different ways in order to, <laughs> okay. to best protect her or his client. Uh, so here we go with the clause. So we have strikes, lockouts, labor disputes, weather, fire, flood, or other casualty or acts of God, war, acts of terrorism, the novel coronavirus, disease outbreak epidemic, pandemic, worldwide illness, and government orders in response to the same, shortage of services, labor or materials, <laughs> or reasonable substitutes, therefore, government action, civil commotion, governmental restrictions, regulations, or controls, delay in issuance of permits beyond time periods typical for the area and other delays by governmental agencies or authorities, or any other cause previously or at such time beyond the reasonable control. I mean, that is, I mean, catch-all is sort of short-selling it, I think. I mean, that's sort of like a smorgasbord of grievances of the last 20 years of American policy, I would say. That's right, with with an addition of, of the pandemic of the last two, right? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. and it's funny, well, you mentioned terrorism, I think, like, like 9-11 was the last like sort of cataclysmic event in this space, right? I mean, people had to like adjust to that. That's right. 9-11 was really the last big event that caused the legal community to question force majeure. And as this clause I just read shows, uh, <laughs> terrorism sometimes makes its way into these now. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I really enjoyed that they... They specified, uh, you know, not only pandemic, epidemic, disease outbreak, but also world. What was it? Worldwide illness. It was. It was just like saying the same thing in so many wonderful different ways. That that you you got it. I mean, the the idea is, you know, you take an event and you figure out a way to say it five different ways, hope, hoping yes. that one of, <laughs> hoping that one of those five ways might resonate with a court, right? Right. So this is another thing you touched on in your reporting, but this is a quickly shifting area of the law where people are clearly trying to account for new occurrences that can let them out of their out of their contract obligations. But when you try and clear up old questions, it often invites new ones. So what are the attorneys that you talk to focused on as they try and sort of continue to craft these contracts that try and plan for the unplannable. Right. So, of course, so much of this is is just, you know, addressing what's currently happening and trying to predict what's going to happen in the, in the next day, week, month, etc. So just looking back briefly, of course, in, in 2020, the big questions were the health crisis uh, 
aspect of the pandemic and the government shutdown aspect of the pandemic. But now that's not quite as that's not quite as new and that's not quite as unforeseen as it had been two years ago. And so I think now some of the more germane questions are, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, questions about the supply chain and how supply chain delays can or can't be force majeure events. And I think this is of heightened interest because of some other things that are happening right now, including the war in Ukraine, including high inflation, recession fears, uh, et cetera. And so I think lawyers are continuing to take a look at how force majeure can be used in the construction supply chain context. I think that's still an evolving question. I think there uh, are some other lingering questions as well. Uh, of course, when we started this discussion and we, when we were talking about the tornado ship, we talked about this the phrase of you know unforeseeable events or beyond reasonable control. And I think lawyers uh, continue to debate what those words or what those phrases mean in the force majeure context. And uh, do events have to be unforeseeable? Do they have to be beyond reasonable control? Uh, I think the jury's still out on that one uh, as it as it relates to force majeure. It's a fascinating and quickly evolving uh, area of contract law, and Andrew McIntyre is all over it. I would definitely encourage everybody to read his pieces if they are interested in this. Andrew, thank you so much for joining Pro Se. Uh, it was a uh, great discussion. Thanks for having me on. Enjoyed it. We like to end the show with something offbeat. And Haley, you've got the floor for quite an illuminating story this week. Um, and I want to give you the space to just tell us what's going on here. <laughs> illuminating is uh, a, an interesting word for this one. So, you know, every now and again, our coverage here at Law360 takes us to some interesting places, touches on some perhaps surprising topics. That is certainly the case here because this week's offbeat has to do with poop. I'm Not so, just poop. I'm I, I I mean I'm so in favor of poop. If I can interrupt <laughs> you, I just I just generally and as a pro se topic, but okay, go ahead. Yeah, Amber's gone, so we're just taking this one fully off the rails. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We're not just talking about poop. We are talking about poop in the mail. <laughs> which is a whole different, in my opinion, tier of poop <laughs> topics. So yeah. the, 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 the reason we're... <laughs> I'm really taking a long time to tee this one up. But the Office of Republican Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan recently received some mailed feces, and that was on our radar uh, here at Law360 because a former court mediator is supposedly the one who mailed it to him. Congressmen, congresswomen are, they're public figures. I'm sure they get sent crazy stuff all the time. And I actually would yeah. bet that this is not the first time that someone sent poop to a member of Congress. I was like thinking that too. This has got to be, I wonder if that's like a specific job 
in the yeah. mailroom for like I, the newest intern. I bet it's not the first time, but the reason we're talking about it is because of the, as you already intimated, let's talk about this alleged poop mailer. <laughs> Who is this person? <laughs> the The male pooper allegedly is named Richard J. Steinel. He lives in suburban Akron, and he was the mediator for the Portage County Common Police Court from 1999 until 2017. Earlier this month, he was arrested on a criminal complaint and charged with a misdemeanor, violating a federal law that bars mailing certain injurious articles. <laughs> uh, I talked about this when we were when we were planning the show yesterday, but injurious, like I. <laughs> there, there are many ways to describe like a piece of feces. Injurious articles is is. I mean, I guess it qualifies. Again, I mean, he's he's been arrested. He's been charged or whatever. This is an area of law we really have not explored. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I you know, I mean, you can call me out. I suppose maybe I should have explored the legal history of the term injurious articles. But first of all, let's get straight, what exactly are the feds alleging here? They say he mailed more than three dozen letters to elected <laughs> and public officials, not just in Ohio, but also in Kentucky, California, and D.C. Um, and this is the best part. They say the federal agents watched him put one of those letters in a mailbox that was addressed to Jim Jordan's congressional campaign. Um, and he was wearing a glove on one hand Look, while he was doing it. <laughs> that almost, I mean, it's, it seems incriminating, right? If the idea is just like there was something unsavory in the envelope. or I mean, I, I don't want to incriminate the guy. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? I, who knows? Um, this, yeah. to me, the first thing that jumped to mind was uh, the O.J. Simpson glove, obviously. Yeah. So I was like, wow, okay, we've got another we've got another big glove here, the poop glove. I mean, we'll see if they if they scan this for like traces of feces. I mean, <laughs> this is I mean, th what we're really talking about here is a very high level <laughs> poop prank which is not uncommon to anybody who's seen, you know, Billy Madison or something else like this. Do you want to yeah. I mean, do you know of any I mean, can I you do. Speak to any I would love poop related crimes. Uh, I would love to crimes? share. So in high school, I'm going to leave out, you know, all names here. Yeah, um, please anonymize anybody you want. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, even even of the institution here. But so in high school, a lot of my friends went to a nearby high school. So I was not at this school, but one of them was the only one of the only people who knew the identity of a phantom pooper who would leave poop in various, in my opinion, comical locations around the school. The only one that I really remember is they carved out a Harry Potter book in the library. <laughs> which oh. I love. I, to this day, I'm like, well done. And there was poop in the, yeah. in the book. All right. yeah. yeah. But so the, the phantom pooper of this school that I will not name remains my favorite poop-related prank that I have heard tale of. Uh, yeah. Hey, listen. I, I again, I don't. Um, I don't have any sort of firsthand accounts here. I only know of the sort of 
lighting the poop on fire and putting it on someone like you know it's right, poop right. again you know the and classic. all of that you have you have more firsthand uh, <laughs> knowledge there and i really do appreciate you bringing that to the podcast today anyway it was my honor we'll see what's going on with this guy um who, who sent the poop to Jim Jordan and allegedly, and allegedly, we'll see what the you. evidence shows. Thank you. Um, but I think that's a good enough place as any to leave it, I suppose. Thank you, Haley. What a great episode we had this week. Thank you, Alex. And we also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Andrew McIntyre, contributing reporters, Jeff Overly, Kelly Leinhard, and Eric Heisig. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find us. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, just head to our website, That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week.